K-A-L-W. This is TBH. I'm Chosung Tenzin, a senior at Oakland Technical High School. And I'm Hannah Nee, a freshman at the University of Chicago. This podcast is made by, about, and for teenagers. And for anybody else who wants to hear what's on our minds. Today's episode is all about social media, politics, and activism online. I use social media like Instagram and Snapchat every day. And I've noticed during quarantine especially, an influx in images about recent news, resources, and the elections have filled up my feed. I'm seeing students reminding others to mail in their ballots early due to the delay in mailing and encouraging teens like me who aren't of age to pre-register to vote. Shortly after George Floyd's death, I remember seeing an abundant amount of posts sharing organizations to donate to, to help African-American communities, and petitions to sign to help the families of victims of extrajudicial killings. How my feed congregated around the Black Lives Matter movement so quickly and in such a prolific way amazed me. Social media is a central part of my generation's experience. It's where we entertain ourselves, where we communicate, and where we learn from each other. Unsurprisingly, more than half of teens receive their news from social media. And if the 2016 election is any indication, social media's influence on elections is far from over. Let's hear a commentary from a San Francisco high school student on why he's worried tech companies have too much power to shape public opinion. My name is Owen Hamilton. I'm in 11th grade at Abraham Lincoln High School in San Francisco. I learned about social media companies selling information to advertisers a lot through my dad because he's very wary about that and he tells us that stuff and um, I still use it frequently and I think it's just unfortunately it's kind of built into kids now and it's hard to kind of stop. I see people putting a lot of their life out on social media like very personal details and stuff that they're doing maybe illegal stuff that jobs maybe could pick up on and not hire them or I think they just put too much of themselves out on social media and it's like a big thing that just information that never gets deleted so um, that information then goes to other like advertisers so they know how to um, sell to you so it's just people don't really know how what the effect of them putting information out there has on Social media as well, I see people kind of panicking and being like, oh, I don't want people listening through the microphone and stuff like that. So when it gets to that point, people do kind of notice or or worry about that. But on a daily thing of like how much we use it, people don't really care. For the future of social media, I just see it becoming more and more attached to human life and already the internet. It helps with many industries and businesses and it's dug its roots into like everything. So I think it'll just, humans will be more dependent on social media and internet in general. One thing I find funny is like how uh, CEOs of big social media companies like Mark Zuckerberg, you see them, they don't, they never use their own um, software and they with their children too they don't let them use it so that just tells us something like uh, something's wrong like they know it's 
detrimental to people. But so they're keeping away from it and they're, they're making their children keep away from it. So that's just something I find funny. That's it's always a trend of like rich CEOs and developers like meditating, using that money to meditate and try to like stay away from the negative effects of social media and that life. I agree with Owen. Posts have more power than we give them credit for. Unlike earlier generations where childhood mistakes existed in a sepia-colored past, our mistakes that appear in the form of videos and pictures can be recorded, live online for decades, and follow us through adulthood. While social media is liberating and giving us the opportunity to present ourselves in any way we choose, it is also constraining compelling us to succumb to external pressures about how we should showcase ourselves. One of our fellow teenagers working on TBH is Ava Richards. She's a senior at Carlmont High School in Belmont. She produced a story about cancel culture that we're going to play now. And if you don't know what that is, she'll explain. Partnering with Amazon just didn't align with best dressed personal brand. And even if she had never mentioned ethics at all on her channel, I think it's still fair to be upset when someone promotes Amazon and to ask them to do better. The person you just heard was criticizing an online influencer I follow named Ashley. She's a young fashion enthusiast, most commonly known by her social media handle, Best Dressed. This critique is part of a long-standing discussion about whether Ashley still deserves support. It's a dilemma that I haven't been able to figure out myself either. Should I cancel an influencer I have long admired for something she did last November? Something that goes against the values I hold and what values I thought she held? If you're unfamiliar with what it means to cancel someone, I'll define the term broadly. Cancel culture is a process of ridding someone from the public's consciousness or punishing them in some other way because they were discovered to have done something offensive whether it had been in the last week or the last decade. In Ashley's case, early last November, she uploaded a YouTube video where she showcased some office outfits. The goal was to give her audience a variety of style ideas. But there was a catch. This video had a sponsor. Before we jump into the lookbook, I wanted to give a big thank you to Amazon Prime Wardrobe for sponsoring this video. Okay, an Amazon advertisement by itself isn't necessarily controversial, yes. However, the reason that many were taken aback by this was because of the ethics of it all. Up until this point, Ashley had been a big advocate for sustainable fashion. It's the idea that clothing should be manufactured, marketed, and used in ways that are environmentally and socioeconomically sustainable. Some examples of this include using renewable energy sources in the manufacturing process, or providing safe conditions and fair wages to workers. Ashley would dedicate entire videos to these topics. She would encourage her audience to participate in the movement when possible. But today I thought I would do at least what I can towards the sustainable fashion movement and talk about some pieces that I got from sustainable brands and some ways that you can get really high quality sustainable clothing without completely decimating your wallet. The partnership with Amazon left fans wondering why someone that had cared so deeply for sustainable fashion would work with such a company. 
It's one that publishes very little information on its environmental impact, is responsible for large amounts of consumption, and is ridden with lawsuits against its wages and working conditions. On paper, Ashley and Amazon's morals and values seem like polar opposites. The video especially upset me because it was precisely Ashley's critique of fast fashion and capitalism that changed my mind about clothes and style. I took a lot of her messages to heart and tried to thrift or buy secondhand when I could. I educated myself on the movement when I couldn't afford to buy from sustainable brands that Ashley loved. I wanted to be just like her. She broke my heart when she published that Amazon video. She had drawn me into her world, made a role model of herself, and then seemingly taken it away from me. I didn't know how to react, and I still don't know what to do now. So this brings me back to my original question. Does she deserve to be cancelled? Would it even accomplish anything or have any impact on sustainable fashion practices? As trivial as my dilemma might sound, millions of people ranging from teens on YouTube to older activists are bewildered by the apparent contradictions of cancel culture. You may have never heard the term cancel culture. It's somewhat of a boycott of a person. It's very big and amorphous. It's hard to define. You're canceled. Canceled? We don't want to give people who peddle hate a platform. But should ordinary people have their lives destroyed by their worst moments caught on video or a bad judgment call they once made? As the New York Times pointed out in the Daily Podcast, cancel culture has even become a factor in the 2020 election. President Donald Trump this July weaponized the concept of cancel culture to tarnish Democrats as quote-unquote un-American. One of their political weapons is cancel culture driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. This is the very definition of totalitarianism. Polls show that Americans hold negative associations with the term. Most of the people whom I spoke to for the story confirmed that sentiment. They think cancel culture is toxic. To help me untangle my own thoughts about cancel culture, I spoke with some of my peers who engage in various kinds of activism. One of them is Ruya Yaman, a junior and friend of mine here at Carmont High School in Belmont, California. She writes a lot in our journalism program and speaks out about issues she cares about online. In short, she's a smart friend and I trust her judgment. I wondered what qualifies someone to get canceled in her opinion and why? I think if they're just like, if they're going against basic human rights, if they're disrespecting anyone because of their race or like sexuality or religion or gender identity or whatever, if they're being disrespectful towards any minority of some sort, that would definitely like lead to me unsupporting them. I agree with her, but this summer, an extreme case of cancel culture went a step farther than just unsupporting the person. A white woman named Amy Cooper was walking her dog off-leash in Central Park in New York City. Chris Cooper, an African-American bird watcher, asked her to put the leash back on. There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. I'm being threatened by a man into the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. 
It was all captured on video, and outrage ensued online. Amy Cooper was fired from her job, and her dog was taken away from her. Even Chris Cooper thought that this was too much. No excusing that it was a racist act, because it was a racist act. But does that define her entire life? I don't know. The Central Park case is an extreme one. There are lots of other examples where events explode online before anyone has had time to find out more facts and context. I've talked about this idea before with my friend Andrew Shaw, As he says, It's kind of like shoot first, ask questions later, that type of thing. They're, they're a little too quick to just cancel them instead of analyze the situation first. Zishan Alim, a progressive writer, further explored this in the daily podcast and online. He's wrestling with the boundary lines of cancel culture himself. On the podcast, he was thinking through a social media campaign against someone who was caught on camera screaming and protesting against wearing a mask. The guy was eventually fired. In American society, when you lose your job, uh, you're not only losing your income, but you're also losing your health insurance. And if you are the, you know, an earner in a family, that could also potentially mean that your family also loses their health insurance. So what that basically means is that when someone loses their job, if they don't happen to, you know, sort of immediately get another one, uh, you're potentially condemning them to extreme sort of material deprivation. Aleem also cautioned listeners to consider who is leading the charge to cancel people and to consider what their agenda is. We don't even know who is whipping up these sort of uh, job firing campaigns. I mean, it could be potentially be, you know, a group of teenagers who are, you know, going for a joyride online. And that's precisely the point. Social media companies have designed their platforms to inflame and make things go viral. Campaigns and outrage gain eyeballs, attention, and engagement. All things that make the platforms attractive to advertisers, says Shaka McLaughlin, a professor of media studies at Purchase College. These platforms are generating billions and billions of dollars, right, out of your emotions, out of your attention, right? And the longer you stay on the screen, it's like ching, 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 ching. And that's why cancel culture mixed with influencers on social media platforms can be so confusing. The whole drama is sometimes manufactured to drive up the page views, comments, and engagement. My friend Ruya provides an example. She points to TikTok star Addison Rae, who encouraged someone on the platform to use the N-word to generate controversy. She was like, oh, say the N-word. And he was like, what? And she was like, it'll get you more popular. Just try it. Like, it's like a game for them. Like, they're just like saying it for popularity to get canceled so that they get more popular. Nobody I interviewed really knew what to do with high school students who make offensive videos or comments. Some said that these people at a minimum should be told why their actions are wrong the first time around. Most of them mentioned incidents where high schoolers who had committed racist acts were exposed online. They weren't sure whether what actually happened to these people was an effective punishment. Their peers punished them by posting their sensitive personal information online. In some cases, they would send the information to students' prospective colleges in hopes that they would rescind acceptance offers. So what's a well-intentioned person supposed to do in this super confusing world? First of all, try to be aware that there's a lot of emotional manipulation on YouTube. 
My friend Annika Kim, another student activist, also puts things in context for me. Who should even accept these apologies in the first place, she asked. In this particular instance, she's talking about Shane Dawson, a popular YouTuber that people canceled for his past racist behavior online. So like blackface, saying the n-word, saying racial slurs, is an offense against the black community that harms the black community. In this instance, it is not up to white people to determine, you know, is he forgiven, is he not, because it wasn't directed at them. Many of my activist friends pointed out that ordinary people who don't have millions of followers should be given a chance to grow. It's really important to like call out people on their past mistakes so they don't keep doing it. But it's also super important to keep in mind that like everyone's human and they can grow from their mistakes. And they asked me, has a person who's done something wrong changed their behavior? Which brings me back to Ashley. If there's anything I've learned so far in 2020, it is A, I should have paid way more attention in home ec class, 2, I had literally no idea how to wash my hands properly, and Roman numeral 3, cockroaches are way faster and bigger than I ever would have expected. Many of Ashley's recent videos still hold true to her original brand of sustainable fashion. The clip you just heard was the beginning of a video she made where she sewed an entire dress from scratch. She's also made a video about transforming thrifted clothing into something she would wear more often, and occasionally disses capitalism and fast fashion. But did Ashley ever realize the error in her Amazon brand deal and try to make a difference? I really don't think so. She continues to promote and monetize things that seem to go completely against her ideals. She's made outfit videos featuring pieces from fast fashion sites with plenty of affiliate links to go along with them. She created a three-part documentary on her experience at New York Fashion Week, despite thinking it was disgusting and elitist. She still maintains her website, where she resells thrifted clothing with hefty markups. The thing that's most disappointing to me is that Ashley has yet to publicly speak about the Amazon brand deal. There was no social media post, no apology, nothing. All she did was delete the video and move on with her life. Ashley also declined to do an interview with me about it. And even with all of these criticisms against her, Ashley's far from canceled. 3.4 million people still subscribe to Best Dressed and her videos still receive millions of views. The online media tracking company Social Blade provides a huge range in terms of what she earns. Let's just say she's making enough to sustain herself, and that's not counting any endorsements and advertorials that she might have going on. I'm not going to lead a Twitter rampage to cancel her channel and take away her livelihood. After all, nobody is perfect and nobody is able to live 100% sustainably, and I recognize that. But I'm also not going to be viewing her videos with as much enthusiasm, if at all. It's hard to be head over heels for someone that acted so hypocritically. Instead, I might donate money, sign some petitions, attend a climate march with Ruya and my other activist friends. Actions that can accomplish more good than canceling Ashley might ever cause. Ava Richards made that story. She's a senior at Carlmont High School in Belmont. I, like Ava, have wondered about cancel culture. Fundamentally, 
Cancel culture subsists on the idea that those who make mistakes cannot change. They're inexorable. And that very notion, ironically, goes against activism's fundamental philosophy that change is possible. I can't speak on individual cases, but I can't help but wonder, since canceling someone is a form of disgracing someone publicly, what is the difference between cancel culture and publicly shaming someone, and what makes the former something good? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves when encountering these sorts of situations. And this also makes me think about the damage depending on online activism can cause. Everywhere online, there are images of black men being beaten, killed, or harassed. The idea is to inspire activism, but just seeing these videos of violence by police again and again can be harmful to our mental health. We talked with our fellow TBH teens who worked on this podcast about online activism. Here's what they had to say. Hi, I'm Ava Richards. I live in Belmont, California, and I am a senior at Carmont High School. My name is Avery Dower. I'm 16. I live in San Francisco, and I go to Ruth Asawa School of the Arts. I'm Maddie Johnson. I live in San Francisco, and I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UC Berkeley. Hi, my name is Zara Emmeth, and I am from Fremont, California, and I'm an incoming first year at Ohlone Community College. Just in the very early days after George Floyd's death, my feed was just filled with, you know, every single person was posting about Black Lives Matter and about George Floyd. And that's awesome, but I think that half the people were posting without intention, without conscious thinking. They weren't thinking about, what am I posting? How does this affect people? How is it going to help people if they see the same graphic video over and over and over? And then we had that whole trend with the, I think it was called Blackout Tuesday, where everyone posted a black square to Instagram. And I think the end tally was that there was something like double the amount of black squares posted on Instagram than signatures on George Floyd's petition. They saw it as a trend and they're participating in Black Lives Matter to sort of just get clout for themselves and make them feel better about themselves and their role in racism and police reform in society. And I think that's something that's been very concerning to me over this summer. And I've had to take, you know, an online and social media break multiple times because it was just so frustrating. I had this friend who didn't post the black square on Instagram because he felt like, you know, it, was, it wasn't really a real form of activism. It was just a performative thing. And then a lot of people started calling him out and saying like, oh, you're, you don't support Black Lives Matter because you didn't post a black square. And I don't understand how like sometimes social media, like people will say that you have to do this thing in order to be an activist when he has been attending meetings with the police to try to get reform in our community. And I just don't understand how sometimes people think that like posting on social media is the only way to fight for change when he's one of the people in our community who's actually like working on reform and talking to the people and trying to work with our community to do better things. There's the popularity thing, especially with kids, where if one person who, because we're in a social media model, say they have tons of followers, if they do it, maybe if I post it, you know, I'm going to get popular and I'm going to be that person, you know. It's just like the social model we live in when you plug it into actual social issues. 
and not just regular everyday social interaction is a little bit or a lot of it problematic. Yeah, I feel like cancel culture recently has been about like, oh, whether a celebrity or not has like posted something about Black Lives Matter or whether someone's attended a protest or if they're doing it just for Instagram. It's kind of weird how like the rules are for that because I'm not really sure how someone sets the rules of like, oh, this is okay, this isn't okay, now you're canceled, now you're not. I don't know, it's just really crazy to see all of that. And yeah, I definitely agree with Maddie that it's exhausting and you have to take breaks because it's just, it gets so frustrating where you're like, ah, like you just don't wanna be a part of this anymore if this is like how the people and like the culture are treating you or someone you're looking at. For the movement in general, I actually really appreciated the flood of Instagram posts on social media because for me, it made the issue seem like, um, it actually like made it seem like, hey, this is a discussion that everyone needs to be having right now. This is not a time for you to just post a cute picture with you and your friends um, on a picnic or something. This is time for you to learn. I think like, yeah, it sucks that some people are being fraudulent activists, but I, for one, actually like benefited from all the social media posts. Like I learned a lot. I bought like three new books from things online. I found like multiple places to donate and then I could easily send these links to my friends. And I think like it's a lot harder to be an in-person activist, um, like going to a protest because of like COVID-19 and people are concerned about, especially like people with like ailments, like they, they have respiratory issues, like they can't go out, but at least they can post something online and maybe um, send in some links to help their friends. Like without social media, I actually don't think that George Floyd's, like these signatures to help victims of police brutality, like these signatures would not have received as many signatures. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like good and bad ways to use it. And I definitely think it depends on the person, but it definitely does, especially in pandemic. Like if you can't protest, like this is one thing you can do, spread awareness online, because for the most part, everyone right now is online. Those were the voices of Avery Dower, Ava Richards, Zara Ahmud, and Maddie Johnson. During the pandemic, people are using social media to find important resources, like the communal town fridge in Oakland, or free COVID-19 testing sites and food distribution sites. But there's a lot more we can do. And when you see disturbing images and violent videos over and over again, it can be hard to process. And the infographics aren't always accurate. Being a real activist requires more time and effort than just reposting. It requires participating in democracy, voting at the very minimum. Don't just research the politics of big national level races, but research local politics as well. Mayoral, city council elections all impact how your community's education, law enforcement, housing, and health systems work. And your vote matters here too. You've been listening to TBH, a podcast from KLW Public Radio. Holly J. McDee edited and taught along with Sarah Lai Sterland and Kristen McCandless. Our engineers are Christopher Agusa, Julia Linus Goodman, Kristen McCandless, James Rowlands, and Gabe Graben. Music was composed by Dawood Anthony. We used additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our artwork was created by Awan Mance, Shireen Adil is the content manager. Ben Trefney is the executive director.
This project was made possible with support from the Association for Continuing Education, the California Arts Council, and California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. In the next episode, we'll hear from people finding community through wheelchair basketball. And there's like, you know, eight guys playing ball in wheelchairs. And I just was, was sitting here going, holy crap. You know, as soon as I found it, I just got excited that I knew that I belonged there. You'll hear plenty more next time on TBH. And we're hoping you'll spread the word too. Tell your friends about our podcast and give us a rating and a review on your podcast provider. Thanks for listening and tune in again. I'm your host, Hannah Nee. And I'm Cho Song Tenzin.